0: Good morning and welcome to The Daytime Show. It's Friday and we're here in Glasgow and I'm, my name's Valerie Gold, and I'm here with Marlene Halliday.
1: Good morning everyone.
0: And we're broadcasting live to you. We are absolutely delighted to have the SNP's frontbench spokesperson on the Treasury here with us today and that is MP for Glasgow Central, Alison Thoulis. Hi, uh, good morning everybody. Good morning Alison and thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to speak to us today. So there's loads of things. You're at one of our most vocal and active MPs down there in Westminster, and um, there's a wealth of things we could talk to you about. So we thought we would kick off with the story of the moment, and that is Brexit. Very hard to know where to start, really. Um, can you give us a wee update on how things have been? How has it been living through this shambles in the Brexit Boudic, as they call it, in the House of Commons? Can you give us are we insight on that?
2: Sure. And I suppose the, the first thing to say is that it's un, quite unbelievable that they're sort of four and a half years in after the EU referendum and we still don't know what's going to happen on the 1st of January. And it really is the government's fault. I mean, example, I was in a debate during the week and all these Tory MPs were going, oh, but what about the EU doing things? And why haven't the EU done this and that? And can you not blame them? And I said, well, you know, they, we've had three different prime ministers. We've had two general elections. Um, we've had all this chaos of legislation um, and we've had a government that's never really known what it wants out of these negotiations never mind uh, how it's going to negotiate so we've ended up in this situation where there's just so much uncertainty and you're watching the, the talks and the the readout coming back from from Brussels and um, and what people are saying and it just doesn't feel as though we're any closer and there's a lot of brinksmanship and a lot of uncertainty um, going ahead and it, it is really unacceptable that we've ended up in this situation. And they're saying that uh, we might have to sit right up to Christmas to try yeah. and get through legislation yeah. and, and things like that. And again, that's this is all stuff that was predictable. We knew when this end date was. And yet we've got all this stuff coming at the last minute, including the um, legislation which will help to uh, smooth things in Northern Ireland as well, which, again, very complex, very detail needs an awful lot of analysis and yet it's been through the house of commons really quickly so all of this is extremely uh, worrying and extremely uncertain um and it is really on the, the uk government's doorstep for for where we've ended up
1: i noticed that uh, even i was watching Newsnight the other night and, and even the presenters you know they'll sort of say well what are the main sticking points and even the presenters are saying well we all know that don't we it's the same as it's been for the last four yeah. years I
0: noticed you said it the other day in your speech, Alison, that um, you were waving the you know huge sh- wad of papers that mm-hmm. you that you had clearly had no time to read prior to that, and also the fact that the government themselves probably had not had time to read it properly, which seems absolutely shocking, really. <laughs>
2: And we're, we're expected to legislate on um, on all, all this detail uh, without having seen it. So the legislation that I was speaking on this week hadn't even been published. We get less than 24 hours notice to look at these huge big wadges of paper to look through the detail of um, VAT legislation, which is not simple, <laughs> easy to read legislation. It's very detailed. that needs that kind of expert um, analysis. And yet we're getting this at the very last minute and people don't understand people who are sort of trading into Northern Ireland aren't yet clear on exactly what the rules are going to be and I understand some regulations have been published but again they're very very detailed so if you're wanting to export um a, so the, the examples being given particularly uh were sausages and mints and um a sort of pre-packaged a cold meals chilled meals subjects very close
0: to our heart <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: if you're um, somebody in you know somebody in Glasgow who produces sausages yeah. and you don't know whether or not you're going to be able to export them in three weeks time on the same terms that you can export them now that's a real problem yes. because you have to be able to kind of have your supply chains all the way back so that's going from farm um, to a supermarket in Northern Ireland relatively quick turnaround of all of those things and all of those processes um, and you don't know what's going to happen and that's really uncertain and I know that the it's spoken and reported in Northern Ireland are again also quite worried about things being there in the supermarkets not just items being there but the cost of them and the yeah. choice of them in the selection. Yeah. and it shouldn't be any less than they have at the moment yeah. but again they, because everything's so last minute you might say if you're a, a food exporter I'm just not going to bother. bother, it's too much hassle
1: At one point some of the big supermarkets were saying exactly that weren't they I mean I think they've pulled back from it now but um, they were saying yeah. that you know we can't do it
2: yeah so they've given them um a sort of three month grace period again but i get nobody quite knows when that's going to happen because they need to recruit all the people to do all the checks yeah and they need to have them in place to do that and again you know recruitment isn't a thing that you can switch on overnight you need to have these people in place uh, now really um not in three months time or six months time and yes tesco
0: are stockpiling food in, in the event, you know, to prepare for, you know, disruption to, to mm-hmm. the supply chains. And also that the, the latest is that Ursula von der Leyen is, has told the EU leaders that a no-deal Brexit is now the likeliest. Marlene, yeah. did you have a question about no-deal Brexit?
1: I do, actually. But maybe before I, before I get onto to that, I would just pick up the thing about the sausages and the supply chains, because I... I happened to catch you uh, when you asked a question to Michael Gove about, it was about that, about the sausages. And um, well, I don't think he replied, I don't think he gave you an answer to your question. Actually, from what I remember in your expressions, you didn't think so either. <laughs> but I just thought, why I'm, why I'm sort of thought of bringing it up? Because I thought it was interesting what he did. He just jumped to, well, If Scotland becomes independent, you know, you can look forward to customs at uh, strong customs kind of posts at Berwick and Cairn Ryan, and, you know, and then he went into a sort of full fake concern about how he hoped you, you know, the Honourable Lady would change your mind about independence. I was sitting saying to the TV, I, right, that'll happen. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that was interesting, isn't it? Because not, I mean, he was just grandstanding. Okay, so that's kind of what they do. But I thought it was interesting because that probably is the sort of, um, you know, comment and statement that we'll be facing when we do get into the next independence referendum.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. That's, you kind of get that answer from Michael Gove because he likes to think he's, he's, he's Scottish and he's plugged into all these things so he can give these kinds of answers. And it's certainly not the case that no, no, Michael Gomes told me um, that things are going to be difficult. That that's me. That's me. Oh, hand my card back. I'm done. <laughs> that's ridiculous um, for me to suggest that. Um, and it was only difficult because the UK government is choosing to make it difficult.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and if they choose not to. Um, accept scottish goods through the board you know through a border that's their choice that's their decision to do that it wouldn't be our decision because why would be we want to be able to trade we want things to be able to move people and goods um, and we want um, businesses to flourish and so the uk government and you know as in a lot of this case is cutting the rose off despite their face really and it was pretty rich of michael gove this week to come out and say oh northern ireland gets the best of both worlds it gets to be in the eu and it gets to be in the union and you're like. That's what we had. That's what we, That's had. What we had. We literally <laughs> had the best of both worlds you're describing here and you are taking it away.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and it's it's pretty telling as well that the, you know, Northern Ireland's getting a special deal. England is getting the Brexit it wants, Wales is voted for Brexit. It's getting what it wants. Scotland is not getting any of what it asked for. Yeah. Not even anything that we negotiated for, like staying in the, in the customs union in the single market, which would allow us to have this kind of, this trade to continue. Um, and so the things that we asked for in, the Scottish government asked for in scotland's place in europe and all those things have just been ignored all out ignored so um it's difficult to to sort of accept the tory position that things will be difficult they're only difficult if you want to make them difficult yeah. and that's their that seems to be their um what they're heading for
1: yeah and, and i mean that point about setting up customs post um Uh, I don't know if you've come across a chap called Bill Austin. He's a retired um, customs and excise expert. I mean, he spent his life working in it. He's been abroad and he set up customs and excise systems Mm -hmm. in the countries abroad. And I I sat in on a talk he gave to, um, who was it? Uh, Yeston Barr the other week, um, which we recorded and put out here. Uh, And he, you know, someone asked him that kind of question about customs force and he said, look, that's old-fashioned thinking. You don't have customs like that. You know, you, yeah, we'll have to collect excise, but we don't could do it at the border. We'll do it. You know, there'll be a mm-hmm. a, a digital setup. We do it yeah. at a point where the goods arrive at a depot. You have to do it, do it that way. Um, he said, "Of course, there may be customs posts at the border, but it'll be England that would put them there. It wouldn't, yeah. be. Hard. yeah. It's not in our interests. Not though, in our interest, the... Yeah, exactly. And." Um...
2: And it was interesting about the, the digital thing. And we've had um, experts on this coming to the Treasury Select Committee because we wanted to understand what the impact, the financial impact would be of an oil, um Brexit or, or of a deal. And it was really interesting because they were talking about, well, France had its, its custom software all set up and ready to go and they've tested it and it's there. And there was a point at which the UK could just have adopted the French software it was there and it was tested and it worked and it was fine whereas hmrc's was still in beta testing and wasn't anywhere near mm. um being ready to use and you go well if you're an exporter automatically that's just been made more difficult for yeah. you
1: yeah
2: um yeah. because the software isn't there to meet the needs of, of your business and
1: yeah.
2: um, whereas france has it already so if you're trying to bring something from france you know, that's going to be easier for the french than it's going to be for us now because um UK government again is is behind the curve on
1: all this. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think? I mean, it's, there's probably not an answer to this, but do you think? I mean, thinking about Scotland being independent, so thinking some years in future, but hopefully not very many years. Uh, do you think that? Well, what would be better from that point of view? Does a No Deal make everything very bad, and or is a a, low, a, a kind of some sort of deal still the preferred option from our point of view?
2: I apologise for the phone going off in the back here. I hoping it's not too loud. Um, I mean, for me, neither circumstance is ideal. And neither circumstance will cover all of the things that Scotland needs out of this. Um, and we wait to see you know, whether there's going to be any kind of deal that will come to us. We need to be able to have the time to look at that, to, anal- to analyse that, to see is this going to be good for Scotland or not? Or is it going to be less bad <laughs> than yes, the, the situation yes. that we're going to get? Yeah. And a no deal really does worry me because you're you're talking about important goods coming across the border it's not just about um you know having you know peppers from um, the netherlands or cheese from france or pasta from italy it's about medical supplies yeah, yeah. um and there's a person i know who imports their sons um whose, whose son's a uh, food comes from specialist medical food comes from the netherlands and he's really worried because he doesn't know if that's going to be able to move or if it's going to be caught up in all the rest of the the trucks that are stuck at the the border at Dover. Um, And that is really worrying. And the government really doesn't have enough answers on that. And they're talking about lorry parks, they're talking about passports to get into Kent, they're talking about all these kinds of things, but they're not talking about how you're making sure that people that really need goods coming through the border that they're prioritised in all of this. Or is it just going to be stuck in a massive queue of lorries um, with no kind of prioritisation at all? You're also talking about tariffs going on to things as well, which will make it more expensive um, and make people in the continent less willing to buy what we are going to sell them. Because if there's going to be a huge additional tariff whacked on the top, are you really going to bother? Are you going to get something from elsewhere? Which is a real problem
0: for our food and drink industry. Yeah, I read, I read somewhere that another problem is the actual lorry drivers themselves, that a lot of the big, it was, a, it was an interview, I think it was on LBC with James O'Brien with, uh, a Hollier, you know, somebody mm-hmm. who owned a big haulage company, and he said that uh, a lot of the big... Uh, inter-European companies are from Estonia and Latvia and Hungary and places like that and the the lorry drivers are employed but almost kind of like on a semi-self-employed basis so they get paid for the distance that they go so if they are stuck Mm -hmm. in a queue they're not getting paid. So a lot of them have just said, right, that's it. We'll just not go to the UK anymore because if they're going to spend, you know, a day or whatever stuck in a lorry park in Kent to get out or stuck in the north of France or Belgium to get in, they'll just say, No, I'll go to Spain or I'll go to Italy. I'm not going to the UK. And that's a that's a frightening prospect, isn't it? It is,
2: and um and that makes sense um, from what you're saying there. And Again, it's things that the UK government just really haven't thought about too much. It doesn't feel like... But, they, they just assume that things that things will
0: keep moving and things yeah, will keep happening. I'm, re, I'm reassured... If, need, if it's been made more difficult, is it going to be worth the hassle? I'm reassured by Tory Robert Auckland, I think he's a Welsh Tory, who said on Newsnight the other night, our friends in Europe need to put aside their ideology, which I thought was an absolute belter. Because, I mean... Oh my whole, goodness. This whole I mean, they've got no self-insight. This whole Brexit thing is completely driven by ideology. Yeah. It's, not, it's a complete act of economic self-harm. Anyway, it's so depressing. Shall we talk about something
1: else? <laughs> <laughs> what can we can we talk about? Just can we talk about the five hundred pound bonus to, you know, the, so the first minister announces that, you know, frontline workers and I, I, and then she said you know, please don't take tax off it. I, I I I was watching the update and I sort of thought, oh, that's clever. That's win-win. You know, if they don't take the tax off it, that's a win for us. Lose for them because they'll have England and Wales on their back saying, what about us? Mm-hmm. If they do take the tax off it, it's still a win for us because we're going to go Tory government, just what you expect. But I, I noticed, I think you asked a question about it and... Um, they're not sort of doing a kind of yes and no response. What they kind of bat it back and say, "Oh well, Scottish government are in charge of income tax." So, mm-hmm. what is that about? I mean, there must be some kernel of truth in that, but it's certainly it's not the whole story, is it?
2: It's not. No. So we're responsible for setting the Scottish rate of income tax, um, and we've we've done that, and that's that's been fine. The difficulty is that this five hundred pounds. We wouldn't get the money back from that in tax. So what they've said is that you want to grow that up, you want to make it up to the level that it would be taxed upon, so you wouldn't lose out. So you make it up to you know six hundred odd pounds and the five hundred that would come off in tax. But the difficulty is that coming off doesn't get um, processed. There's a whole kind of two year process behind that before the Scottish government would see any of that. Um, and it's, it makes it incredibly uh, complicated. And it's pretty disingenuous for the UK government to say that because it is in fact. HMRC that controls yeah. the vast majority yeah. of the systems of the tax yeah. of everything else so it would be for them to make it a, a, you know at their end rather than for us to change things at our end and it is very much their responsibility there's also sort of implications for tax credits and universal credit yeah. as well yeah um, which again the mechanisms are at their end not at ours and um, to, to make a disregard for, for that kind of payment uh, within universal credit and tax credits they are deciding that they don't want to, and it's not as if it's just us that's asking. Because Wales have also brought in something very, very similar, um, and have asked the UK government again to um, to exempt the tax from it. And they've said no to Wales as well. So it's not just us that have done this and asked this and made this request. And I think it's it is a good and important um, thing to do, particularly at Christmas, particularly when people have been so th- through such a tough year in health and social care. Um, where they've given their absolute all, where they've seen you know members of their own teams you know take ill and pass away, um, working in care homes they've had to kind of take the huge burden of not only doing the care work, um, but keeping people going because they've not been able to have their family and friends in as well, and that's been a huge burden, um, on people doing that, um, emotionally particularly, and I think it's a good recognition of what people have been have been through this year, and I think it's. For the uk government to try and make this into more of a, a political thing i think is unfair um i think it's, it's a good gesture they should just sort of recognize that and say you know what yeah. christmas time time of goodwill let's just kind of find a way to make this work rather than actively looking at ways not to make it work yeah
1: yeah, exactly.
2: yeah.
0: um yeah it's interesting what you mentioned about tax credits and universal credit there because a young friend of mine got in touch with me. She's a single mum. She's in her twenties and she works in the health service, but she works part-time because the uh-huh. we, you know, our wee kit kiddies only two. I think she works two or three days a week. And that's what she was worried about. She wanted, she was asking me uh-huh. if I knew. Um, would Her benefits advisor wasn't clear whether it would be treated as income or as mm-hmm. a, a gift or whatever, because mm-hmm. otherwise a, most of it would be swallowed up by a loss yeah. of benefits, so yeah. it wouldn't be any use to her. And it made me quite angry because on the BBC they had a big thing about it on the radio, you know, the usual call key and you know, all this, or John Beatty's mm-hmm. programme. And they, they wheeled out, you know, some very lofty consultant who earned megabucks who said that who criticized this and said she didn't need it and I thought well maybe you don't but there's plenty yeah, more of people than to judge. service that do need it mm-hmm. and if you don't need it well that's fine just give it away give it mm-hmm. to you know crisis at Christmas or give it to mm-hmm. the you know, the Salvation Army or the folk that the city mission in the city centre of Glasgow that work with, you know, folk that need help at yeah. Christmas. But uh, it's almost like Mar- Marlene was saying it's a win win situation, but I was absolutely. Mm-hmm which over by the number of people they managed to dredge up. Who could it say? So, you know, I'm a yeah. big man. How come I'm not getting you know?
1: Well, I, I mean, it would have been better to have got on someone who's an advisor at Citizens Advice Bureau because, you yeah. know, we, we sit there, or well, I haven't done this all year, but I normally do once a week. We sit there and you get someone on universal credit and they come in and they say, my universal credit's been stopped. And it turns out it's because they've had back pay from their previous job, Mm -hmm. way predating when they took out the universal credit claim, and and they've treated it as current income. I mean, when I found out that happened, I thought, God, it's so cruel, absolutely cruel to do that, isn't it? And the same would happen if they get five or 600 quid from the Scottish government. Mm -hmm. Anyway, maybe we should move on to... Something else, Val. <laughs> so, one
0: thing that I was going to ask you about Alison, because I know it's a subject that you have campaigned on very much, eh, that in fact, I think it's the header photograph on your Twitter with mm-hmm. my with me that, it, because I, yes. <laughs> I came one I think it was about four years ago now I came down on very snowy January oh, morning to George Square and we we had a wee demonstration and that was about the rape clause I'm so superficial and shallow when I, every time I see that photograph I think oh look at the state of my roots I wish I'd had my <laughs>
2: I didn't. I suppose I should have told you
0: four and a half years ago that we'd still be talking about it today. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That's me just being really stupid, indeed, frivolous. So it's a very serious matter, and obviously I did care about it, or I wouldn't have dragged myself down there at nine o'clock in a freezing cold Saturday morning. So the the rape clause, the two child family cap, is such a, yeah. a an iniquitous and hard hearted policy, and callous, and it's you've campaigned for that you picked that up at the very beginning by wading through if i remember by wading through yep. the pages of legislation and your well-known glasgow city council yeah. trip i think i'm starting at the back is that right because <laughs> anyway, that's yep. where they hide the things you know <laughs> anyway to cut a long story short that came up again recently i noticed um there was a a news item last this week, just and it was about how the two child cap eh, for benefits was actually having an effect on yeah. the numbers of women seeking terminations. I just wondered if that's something that you'd like to comment on, Alice.
2: It is, yeah, and I mean, as, you, as you're saying, this is something that I picked up in the, the 2015 budget, and um, that they were going to bring in this two child limit on child tax credits and universal credit, um, limits, and London, that that's for the first two children in a family and they have a number of exemptions to the policy one is uh, if the uh, if there's a multiple birth in some circumstances not in all circumstances so if you've had uh, one child and then you have twins then there's an exemption if you have twins and then you have one child there's not an exemption because that, that's the way they've set that up um there's another exemption around a sort of uh, caring and adoption and uh, the third the, the other exemption is a uh, is what's um, been termed the rape clause. So, if you can prove uh, that your third child—not your first or second—the third child has been born as a result of um, rape or coercive control, you can fill in a form to get an exemption from the policy um, from the UK government. And I've said for a long time that that's an absolutely appalling policy, uh, and it is. But that's still how they um, how they pursue that. And among the concerns that have been raised uh, about the two-child limit is the the issue of um, what impact that will have on women's decisions to have children. And there's been a long sort of long-held uh, misconception that people just get have children to have benefits, which there is no evidence to suggest it's true. But that seems to be the, the kind of Tory line on this. And it's an absolute myth. Um, and in fact, you, they, they have no evidence to back that up. But one of the things that has been a concern um of mine over this was would this cause more women to opt for terminations rather than to continue with the pregnancy and of all the things that of this policy that I wished I was wrong about I wished it was that
1: mm, yeah.
2: um, but it has in fact been backed up by the statistics so uh, BPAS uh, who do an awful lot of work in this area uh, have been working um, with the Church of England on this issue and they're not necessarily the, the organizations that, that match up with one another on every issue but on this they, are, they have been doing a lot of work uh, jointly. And what they found with their their, their statistics is between 2016 and 2019, so the policy came in in April 2016, the number of abortions performed in England and Wales increased by 11.7%, which is a really significant rise. So that's gone from 185,000 to 208,000. So over this same period, the number of abortions performed to mothers with two or more existing children increased by 16%. So there's a higher percentage of people who have two children already opting for for terminations. and So the numbers with with no children or one existing child only went up by 10% and 7% respectively. So it is these people who've got two children who who are opting for that. And they've done a lot of research into this about why this is happening and is this backed up. So they've done a survey um, with with parents and they said that over half, 59% of the respondents to their survey... Said they were aware of the two-child limit prior to having their termination, um, and that's backed up by by other research that C, that CPAG and the Church of England have also done. So they were aware of it, and it's and it's they've had have some degree of evidence that say the policy was important in their decision making. Fifty-seven percent of people said that the policy was important in their decision about whether or not to to keep the pregnancy. So mm-hmm. the two-child limit is having uh, an impact on whether or not people that are continuing with, that- with 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 healthy pregnancy, yeah. and it's just the most awful um, chilling thing to read they've got a, a, a really good report on this so families are, are opting to do this to terminate healthy pregnancies because of government policy
0: it's absolutely disgusting and
2: it's it's just disgusting and it's appalling and you know you folk talk about the china and the, the one child yeah. limit and things that they have
0: yeah but this is a
2: government this is uk tory government policy is now driving people to terminate pregnancies and I'm you very know, supportive of a woman's right to choose but this doesn't feel like that this feels that people are being forced into it for reasons um of poverty and for reasons of government policy
0: that's a totally different thing really from having the freedom to plan your family yeah, I mean, yeah. it's almost it's almost like it's going back to um you know victorian times isn't it you know it's when people yeah. couldn't afford to have children and it's it's really as you say chilling is the word yeah. um and, it's, so, and that's and the sort of flip
2: side of that is there are women that will never opt for that will never take that option for religious reasons or because they they wouldn't take a, per, a, a termination or, or things like that um and for them that means poverty mm-hmm. so the choice is, is do you terminate a healthy pregnancy or do you continue with it I know that you're going to struggle to um, feed that child, to clothe that child because of the very tight restrictions the UK government have put on that policy. Yeah. And we
0: know about the, the child poverty stats and the food bank stats and yeah. the difficulties that families child, are in. More and more, and more, child children, yeah, more and more children are slipping into yeah. poverty because of the, their policies. Is it something like one in three children? or is, um, I seem to remember the last... Or maybe not quite as many, but it it's it yeah. I remember when it's I was, it's wow. a growing number. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So true. do you get have um, you had any response from the government side to the to that research?
2: Okay. No, I haven't. So I'd um, I'd already written to um to the um, secretary of state for the DWP today's coffee um a couple of months ago. I've still had no response to that. And there's now been you know a whole wien different secretaries of state who've presided over this policy, and none of them have got close to giving me any kind of answer on this. Um, so I'm still waiting for a response from her um, on this issue because it shouldn't be that this is the choice that women are facing now it just shouldn't be it's not right um, and it's, it is very real in terms of the consequences that people have um, are facing because of the decisions of government policy and um, so something really does have to have to go with this and the only concession that's been given uh, through this uh, so far is that they were going to make it retrospective so uh, it only applies to, um, to new births after a certain point, and they were going to make it to all children, um, but they did actually go back on that, and then that Secretary of State resigned, so we're kind of thankful for the um, for the small and limited way that that's been helped. But again, the policy, if it's unfair for some people, it's unfair for everybody. Yeah, it is. And they've accepted that it's unfair for some people because they were born after a certain point, uh, before a certain point or after a certain point, and for me, it, it really has to go. I mean, this two-child limit. Is pushing families into poverty, it is driving choices that people shouldn't have to be making. Yeah. Um, and it is something that really has to go. And yeah. issues like the rape clause as well, there's no way of, of mitigating that without scrapping the whole policy.
1: Yeah. And, the and whole there, isn't anything, there isn't anything that Scottish government can do to um, change that. Can I mean, that's not within their remit. Although they have brought out the £10 a week uh, yeah. uh, to, each, is it to each child. Uh,
2: so they brought in the the scottish child payment which again is is a brilliant thing and will really help to um that 10 point a week will really make a lot an awful big difference to some families and uh, that's really welcome but in terms of this this is the 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 very structures of universal credit that are put in place um and also the vast majority of people are still on child tax credits and we have absolutely no control over child tax credits and it applies to both of those policies so even if there was a limited way in which we can mitigate it for UC, we can't fix it for tax credits yeah. um, and it really has to go for both of them if you want to have that equity because yeah. people can move, you know, from, from one or the other um, and I think it's you would, it would still be very difficult to try and mitigate that as well. So, um, for example, if somebody was to move north of the border and be eligible and then move south of the border and not be, again, that's completely unfair and unjustifiable. Um, and it's the UK government that has the control over yeah. this, this policy at the root of it and they have to get rid of it for everybody because if it's unfair here it's unfair yeah, yeah, there yeah, it's unfair yeah. for families yeah. that born before a certain point it's unfair for families born after a certain point point. Yeah. Um, and I just don't accept that there's anything about this policy that's that's worth keeping it should all go
1: what
0: a question here from you from our public chat room um from ray crofter allison um his question is it's quite long 85 <laughs> percent of the care homes in scotland are privately owned profit generators of which some of the companies are registered in off- offshore tax havens why has this got I know that you're, you know, in Westminster, but Ray, his question is, why has the Scottish Government not made this point more often like it did at the beginning of the pandemic? Because not by not doing so, they've left the general public under the impression that we are actually responsible for so many deaths in care homes, when in fact much has been due to poor care home management, including movement of staff between homes and not following government health guidelines. In the
2: event of a pandemic? I think that's it's a really good point and a really good question. Um, but I think there's a risk there of sort of getting into a, a bit of a blame game as well, which I don't think really helps anybody in the circumstances where they've lost a loved one. They, they're not interested in and in, in who's to blame, I don't think. But I think it's it is an issue in terms of getting things right for the future.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and I think there's a real push now to look again at how social care is delivered. Do we want to have care homes in the same format that we've got? Or do we want something to change and to be made better? Um, and they are, you know, there are difficulties there. The situation in Sky, for example, seem to be caused in, in some part by staff being moved around the place yeah. um, inappropriately. And that's happened in other care homes, I think, as well. And I think that we need to find a much better way of doing this and looking after um, those who need that long-term care. Um, and to make sure that they are as, as well looked after and as safe as they can be, and I should say that um, the three of my grandparents ended up um, in care homes at the end of their life, and the staff were absolutely fantastic. And yeah. my, my two grands were in the same care home, although not at the same time, um, and they did their their very best for them. But it must it is incredibly difficult. Yeah. If that you're was working my... in The margins that private businesses are, are are running on to make sure that that's done properly, that staff are paid well, yeah. um, that the circumstances in which they're working are appropriate, that they have the right PPE and all the right equipment they need. And I think there's been real difficulties across the UK, across the world, in fact, because I know that this, this was an issue in Spain as well, about how people are, are looked after when they're there, and how we make sure that, that, um, that people are protected
0: as best they can be, the staff as well as the residents. Yeah. Yeah, Thank yeah.
1: you
0: for that answer. Alison, we thought we'd maybe just um, before we finish up with you, if you're okay to stay with us just a little bit mm-hmm. longer, we're here with Alison Phyllis. You're here on the daytime show on IndieLive.radio Live Radio with Valerie Gold and Marlene Halliday. And as I said, we're absolutely um, chuffed to bits to be talking to. Uh, our MP for Glasgow Central, Alison Thulis, today. And we've touched on various things already, the two-child family cap, the effect it's having on Brexit, and also Brexit. But um, we'd also like to ask you, Alison, partly because one of our later guests today, I mean, it, apart from the fact it is a really, really important um Topic, but we've got a guest coming on later from um, Refugees for Justice group, um, Dylan Futuhi. So we thought we'd like to ask you because I know that that's with the catchment area and constituency that you have, that 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 you do a lot of work, a lot of um, advocacy work for asylum seekers and refugees here in Glasgow and that it's a subject close to your heart. So we thought we'd just like to ask you maybe for a comment on how you think things are here in the city and also maybe a bit wider on the the Home Office policy and the recent deportations that we've seen happen down in the south of England?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're right, Val, a lot of the the casework that I get is to do with um, things the Home Office have got wrong uh, in one way or another, and a lot of that can be asylum seekers and refugees, uh, but a lot of it is just people who are are living here, who are working here um, and and want to get on with their lives and the delays that the Home Office are causing, particularly at the moment are just causing so much uh, stress and grief to the consi- to my constituents. And you're waiting for, for months and months for answers for very, very simple things, yeah. um, not even very complex cases. And the complex cases are waiting even longer. Um, so it is very, very difficult for lots of folk. And there are still people uh, who are stuck in hotels who were moved there at the start of lockdown by the Home Office. And some of them are still there. And they've no sense as to when they're going to get um, into more settled accommodation, when their cases are going to be heard, whether they're just going to be there. Uh, indefinitely, and it's it's really not good enough. Um, it's not good enough at all, and the Home Office are very poor at giving us any kind of reasonable
0: answers to when somebody will be able to be um, to get on with their lives. Yeah, and so they're they're quite a difficult um, agency to deal with.
2: They are, and they offered a, a couple. I think it's probably about a month ago now. Um, oh, would you like to come and meet with um, the Home Office Minister and discuss some of your urgent cases so I jumped at that I said absolutely I've got some cases that are, are really urgent I've been waiting for ages I'll come and discuss them with you um, so I had this meeting and then they asked me to you had to send them information before the meeting about the people you wanted to discuss which I did and then they came back so we, we had the meeting and then I had to describe things all over to, all over again to them so they clearly hadn't read what was in front of them that I'd sent them so I had to go through that again and I'm still waiting for responses um, even after having had the personal meeting with the Home office minister to, to discuss these cases and one of them um, I can talk about a wee bit because it's somebody that was in the, the national at the weekend so it's a case of a husband and wife so the wife went to um, prior to lockdown beginning had gone to Afghanistan with her small children to, for, her family, for family reasons uh, while, she, while she was there lockdown happened and she couldn't get back and her visa expired and she's not been able to get the visa renewed so they won't allow her to get on a plane to come home with her children who are British citizens hmm. so I have this meeting with the home office and they said oh yes we'll go away and look at that and yet she's still there and she's still waiting and uh, one of her children was supposed to be starting school this year and the school are going well where's, where's this where's this kid You said it was going to turn up and this family's now been apart um since March
1: tragic yeah.
2: uh, and the home office are doing absolutely nothing it appears to to get that resolved and, you know, that shouldn't be a difficult thing. It should no. be, you know, we'll sort this woman's visa, we'll let her get on a plane, we'll let her come home to her family and, and continue with their lives. So the Home Office are just, yeah, they're just absolutely useless in so many ways. But in other ways, they're actively harming people. And there's policies that have come out, like the, um, the issue where they um, are going to start uh, removing homeless people from the country, that homelessness will be
0: part of the reasons that they used to, to, uh, for removal. Which is just despicable. Well, especially when you have people with no recourse to public yeah. funds. Yeah. yeah. Um, how yeah. can they be anything but homeless, you know, if they don't have recourse to public funds and they're not allowed to work? Yeah. So there's so many people that end up in these circumstances for, yeah. for and
2: because the home office takes so long to make a decision, they make people um absolutely destitute and it's awful. And I think you you mentioned some of the, the deportation flights as well. And the home office like to pretend that this is all about um people that they that are bad people that should just be removed from our country and the truth is it's a lot more complicated than that and they like to complain about activist lawyers and people that are trying to stop this um this removal just for i um, for, for for being do-gooders and i'm quite fond of do-gooders do-gooders <laughs> are the kind of people that we need in this country other than uh, folk like uh, like pretty patel yeah um who's a do-badder yes um, and you can't help be moved by things like the, the, the letter that was put up by the, the son of one of these people that was being removed, who who loves his dad, he wants to be with his dad and um, will miss him incredibly. You know, that he's a father figure in his life and you want to remove him and send him somewhere else just because uh, the Home Office has decided that that's how the things are going to be. Mm. And it really is quite despicable. And the way in which they do this is that they leave things to... Last minute, they make it very difficult for the people on these flights to access legal legal support, so they can't get hold of lawyers and they can't get hold of somebody that can help them and advocate in their behalf. So I know some people were able to be removed from that flight thanks to the intervention of some lawyers, but it's very difficult for for, it's for people in those circumstances to get legal support or to get the support of their MP because they can't contact them and they can't meet them and they can't get in touch with people because of the way the system is set up. So everything the Home Office does seems to be driven by this kind of pernicious um, attitude towards immigration and towards um, those who want, to, who want to come and choose to live here. And we should be saying thank you to, to the vast majority of the people yeah, that want to come and live get, here yeah,
0: yeah,
2: and rather we, than making them feel so yeah, unwelcome. Yeah.
0: When we get our independence, which hopefully won't be too much longer, I'm sure that Scotland will have a very different, I mean, we already have a very different attitude towards yeah. New Scots yeah. and people that come from elsewhere. Yeah, um, indeed. I and mean all... it's
1: it's a waste. It's a waste it's such a waste isn't it it's it affects immigrants asylum seekers lives hugely when sometimes they come in and they've got a lot of good qualifications mm. and even if they don't particularly they're willing to go and work and you know and then mm. get some qualifications so it's a waste of that and, and it's a waste for for the country as well I mean never mind the tax revenue which is you know just in terms of people's well-being and feeling of self-worth it's just a sort of ridiculously you know negative approach they all the whole time anyway yeah the constituents
2: that i speak to have something to contribute you're absolutely right and the the program that they've done to get um doctors the correct qualifications to come into the nhs was a was a really good initiative by the scottish government and i would like to see um other professional bodies doing similar so if you're if you're a qualified accountant um, from Syria, why can't you be an accountant here? Can we find some way of of, of smoothing that for people so that the qualifications yeah. and the skills that people already have allow them to get started here as quickly as possible? So anything that could be done um, by anybody who knows anything and who's listening and as part of any organisations like that, try and make a way of smoothing those um,
0: those qualifications, making things easy for people to get up and running yeah. again yeah. Um, and yeah. using the skills that they've got. Absolutely. Yeah. So Alison, I'm conscious that time is not on our side, and we've Taking up a lot of your time you've been very generous to come on and speak to us with your time today so um we're going to finish up before too long i'd just like to mention one thing that was really touched when i was listening to your speech in the house of commons the other day to hear you mention my fellow branch member craig munro who very sadly passed away last week and um his funeral is this afternoon. So I'd just like to thank you for mentioning Craig and he's somebody who has been paid tribute to by literally thousands of people yeah. on social media. And I'm sure, and I know from reading on Twitter and on Facebook, that that's been a, um, a massive comfort um, to his family, his sister and his son, Sam. So thank you for that Alison. And um. Just on a to change from a serious note and quite a sad one, move to to a sort of a bit daft. Before we go, one last question for you from Dave uh, Rennie, who's listening in in Broughty Ferry. He's asking, "Are you looking forward to the festival of Brexit, Alison?" <laughs> I, I think. Thanks very much to Dave for his
2: question. I think this is just the most bizarre. I thing that the uk government has come up to yeah let's celebrate a thing that um that ruins our economy uh, that uh, damages our international standing and that makes our young people um not being able to go out and, and take their place in the world that doesn't really sound like the makings of a festival to me yeah, really. um, and an absolute waste of money to boot as well from a yeah. government that doesn't want to feed starving children but um want to have a festival of brexit instead so, um, I'd be interested to see how well this goes down as an idea in Scotland, and I'm sure we've got some, some good ideas of our own about an alternative
0: festival <laughs> that we might want to have in the coming we'll years. Just stick to our burn suppers <laughs> yeah. in January. Listen, Alison, thank you very much indeed. We'll say cheerio to you now, we'll let you go, and I hope you have a really good weekend and you're not working too hard, and that you spend <laughs> some good time with your family, um, and that you that you get well, you've already shown us your lovely Christmas tree, so I hope you Christmas jumper as well. Huh? Oh <laughs> 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 yeah, I
1: thank, thanks very much for coming on, Alison.